The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. Now, on to our conversation. All right, we're here with Advocacy in Action, sitting in the historic Fellowship Hall of First Baptist Church of the City, Washington, D.C. I'm here with Jeremy Everett, is the founder and executive director of Baylor Collective, or Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. Uh, Jeremy just gave a keynote on his work and his book, I Was Hungry, Cultivating Common Ground to End an American Crisis. Uh, Jeremy, the Bible talks a lot about poverty and justice. In fact, scriptures talk about poverty and justice over 2,000 times. And just to give us a little comparison, uh, the Bible talks about believing 273 times, praying 371 times, love 714 times. Hmm. And you compare that to the number of times it talks about justice and poverty over 2,000 times. Hmm. In fact, some of the passages in which Jesus refers to our concepts of eternal life and Gehenna It's contingent on whether or not we cared for our neighbors, just for starters, Matthew chapter 23 and Matthew chapter 25. 
But yet, on a given Sunday in America, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that fighting for the rights of the impoverished and seeking justice is not preached prevalently. So why do you think there's such a disconnect from the Bible's overwhelming concern for such matters to the personal religious perspectives of American evangelicals? Well, you didn't start off with an easy one. Uh, so, uh, wow, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I think part of it is, um, well, you know, I mean, as a pastor, you know, I, so I, I travel and speak, but then oftentimes I, I fly to the next city and uh, I don't have to deal with the mess that I may have created, right? And so uh, uh, as a pastor, you're there with the people on a week-in, week-out week out basis, which uh I think can sometimes probably be intimidating when you're thinking about trying to be that prophetic witness. And so I would imagine that that certainly uh, has something to do with it. But I also think that uh, uh, most folks don't know the numbers that you just articulated. And I don't think that people, I think oftentimes in our training and our formation, this is something that we glaze over. I do think that we treat... Uh, justice issues like like providing for the poor, providing for the hungry as extra credit and that it is not central to our belief. And then, of course, in the Matthew 25 text, that is contrary uh, to what Jesus is saying that he is going to judge us by. And so I think I think what's important with that text is that that is the only eschatological or apocalyptic kind of end of the world scene in the entire book of Matthew and Jesus is judging us based upon whether or not we provided food for the hungry. So, uh, so I think in, in part, it's not, uh, it's not been something that's been a part of our formation and is not a part of our, our, uh, understanding of orthodoxy. I will say this, that, uh, we've been blaming the poor for their plight, really blaming the poor for their plight, uh, became a, a favorite pastime of people uh, when Pharaoh had enslaved the it, uh, had, had enslaved the what, who, the people who became the Hebrew people, and he started telling them that they needed to make their own mud bricks, and uh, they needed to harvest their own straw to make their own mud bricks. He said because our slaves are lazy, and really we've we've seen that rhetoric about who is deserving or undeserving as people who are living in poverty ever since. And so if there's anything that we can do as people who are, in, particularly people that are in, in ministerial roles, and you do have the opportunity to frame the narrative, it's to help people understand that uh, that, that is not the case at all. Uh, that, that it's not that the poor are lazy, um, which, which causes their uh, economic realities. It's that they're underemployed. And so I think we, as a, as a people of faith, really need to begin to reframe the understanding on that particular issue. Now, it's easy for those of us who clearly have come to advocacy and action uh, to experience this in D.C. for four days. We understand why we are here. Uh, we get it. Um, but for many of the congregations we serve, they might not necessarily have the same theological convictions that, that we do. So what does it practically look like to spiritually form our local churches on what clearly is God's concern for um, people experiencing poverty and people that are at the brunt end of injustice. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is, um, so I, I, I spoke about having three, you know, that you need to do three things in order to rush to understand. You need to have proximity to the problem. You, needed a, you can't solve a social problem from a distance. You need to understand what research suggests so that you... Uh, so that your work does more good than harm. 
and then you need to understand your faith tradition. And I think one thing that uh, our congregations I th can do to move towards empathy is having more proximity, not just showing up to a place in their community and, and dropping off bags of food once a year, but to really spend the, do, do the hard work of cultivating relationships with people who are living in very different circumstances than them. And I think once you genuinely build a, a, a real relationship, uh, that begins to, to break down a lot of the maybe ideological pr uh, positions that you held previously. And, uh, and so I think that that's a good first step um, for folks. Now, there are ways you can do that. I mean, there are certainly ways like through volunteering with programs, uh, whether it's programs like uh, uh, Angel's program, Touching Miami with Love, or a Meals on Wheels program in your community, uh, where you're able to both deliver meals and spend time with people who are, are elderly and living in isolation. But I think its proximity is, is, is critical. Now, in the book, you lay out five steps to create hunger-free community coalition, which includes recruiting participants, yeah. uh, establishing coalition structure, plan for action, take action, and assess um, progress. Now, individual trust and commitment and community are the buy-in of that is crucial, and right. you talk about this a lot in the book. Yeah. You should read the book. Uh, we should have had them read it before they came there in today. You go. But, That's right. Um, you also wrote that widespread coalition is also required. Um, so. Uh, collaboration uh, requires openness and trust, um, but I hope this fact doesn't kind of shock you. We live in a hyper-partisan time, and the idea of collaboration seems impossible. So in your work and in your experience, what seems to get in the way most of healthy collaboration? Yeah. Uh, well, prob probably our egos, I mean, typically get in the way of, of collaboration. And I think from our perspective, hunger and poverty are too big for any one person or any one organization to be able to address and effectively end by themselves. And so it inherently requires all hands on deck. Uh, the late uh, uh, Harvard sociologist Talcott Parsons um, talked, said that we live in these modern complex systems and that modern complex systems, you have people uh, working in each of their areas probably to a higher level than we've ever had in each individual area. So you think about the medical profession, you know, you literally, they, they can literally create a heart and do a heart transplant uh, with an artificial heart. That is incredible what they're able to do. But my father-in-law was, uh, uh, he was, he was in the hospital a few years ago and, uh, and, and the different specialists weren't communicating with each other. And so they didn't realize that everything that they were doing was, was uh, it may, they were trying to help different parts of his body while wreaking havoc on other parts of his body. And, and it wasn't until they stripped him off of all the medication and really all got in the room together that they could figure out a collective game plan on how to help my father-in-law get back to health. And, and oftentimes when you think about the different sectors in society, so you've got the, uh, the business sector, the political sector, you've got, uh, uh, of course, faith communities and nonprofit organizations and universities, and we all stay in our own lane. And when we all stay in our own lane, we're, we're losing out on the benefit of, uh, of collaboration. And we are, if we're going to deal with any of these big social issues, whether domestically or globally, we have to have an integrated response. Um, and yes, because we live in a hyperpartisan world, that makes it incredibly difficult. That's one reason that we have, we've encouraged communities to work on hunger, uh, hunger as a, and build these hunger-free co uh, community coalitions first. 
uh, because for whatever reason, hunger on the local level is still a bipartisan issue. Uh, you know, we joke in Texas we can get the Catholics and the Baptists to work together on the issue, and, and we even have uh, we even had a task force in, in Dallas where you have uh, the Muslim community and the Jewish community working together uh, with the evangelical community on on doing outreach around the issue of hunger. So for whatever reason, it's a good galvanizing entity that where you begin to to uh, to sit down with people that come from all different political persuasions, all different religious persuasions, from all different sectors, because you got to have the corporate sector there, you got to have the government sector there with the faith community sector. And it's when you're working together that trust begins to form because a lot of the preconceived notions that you had begin to break down. And uh, I'll tell you one, one brief example is that uh, when we had our first hunger summit, uh, we invited uh, organizations that were big organizations to help plan our first hunger summit on Baylor's campus 10 years ago. And it was federal agencies and state agencies and, and nonprofit organizations and advocacy organizations. And, and the room was tense. Um, historically, these groups did not play well in the sand together. They, uh, uh, they were oftentimes at odds. But one of my colleagues had everybody go around and introduce themselves and say, and she said, everybody tell us why you do the work that you do. And almost all, uh, all but one person in the room of about 25 or 30 people said that they were there because of their faith experience. That it was their faith that had called them to work on the issue of hunger. And it, so it didn't matter if they worked for a government agency or an advocacy organization or a nonprofit, they were all there for that particular reason. And that began, you could just see kind of the tense shoulders begin to, uh, to relax. And then people began to start to trust each other and, and trust each other's motives a little bit more and uh, ultimately began to operate like a team who just happened to be getting paychecks from different organizations. And so I, I've, seen that it, I've seen it happen on a local level. I've seen it happen on a state and the federal level. So I know it's possible, uh, but it does take a lot of time. And uh, hopefully that is God's endorsement above us <laughs> and not the ceiling about to fall down. Um, or somebody used the uh, uh, somebody's using the fountain. Yeah. That's right. That's why you're not supposed <laughs> yeah. to use it, right? I got a feeling we don't use the water fountains because those are lead-based pipes that yeah, are probably in there. So, right. um, you know, locally on our level, we we dealt with this issue within uh, honestly within our own congregation. And Stephen alluded to this earlier that many of our congregations are theologically and politically diverse, where some might see. Um, a healthy food crisis as a gospel-centric issue. Other people within our congregations might see that as, well, that's a political affair. So advocacy seems like, for many, a politically charged term. So is there another way that we can navigate and talk about this within our congregations that doesn't immediately isolate or entrench people into their uh, political ideals? I think getting involved. I think uh, again, it goes back to proximity. So I think I think it's immersing yourself in the realities of what's happening in the community. And so, uh, if you have, uh, if we know that our kids don't have access to summer meals on a regular basis when they get out of school, uh, then it's important to provide access to summer meals. And uh, and so a church can engage either by becoming a summer meal site. Um, or partnering with a school or a, or a community rec center that's a summer meal site and doing volunteer activities with them. And a lot of our, a lot of our, it doesn't, it doesn't matter your political persuasion. People in our congregations want to get engaged and get involved. 
And then I think a part of the, your job uh, as leaders in your faith communities is then to begin to ask the larger questions. Okay, so we're, we volunteered at a summer meal site all summer. Uh, why do the kids not have any food at home? And uh, what are some things, what, what can we learn more about the, the circumstances of this particular neighborhood? We know that kids uh, who are in poverty live in transient households and they're moving from house to house on a regular basis, but this neighborhood's been poor for 100 years. Why has it been poor for 100 years? What, you know, uh, tell me about redlining, you know. Uh, uh, one of the things we learned in the race equity training, you know, is that, uh, uh, so for, for, you know, the, the GI Bill for, uh, after World War II really built the middle class. Um, it's, it's, it's how uh, our, many of our parents and grandparents were able to purchase a home uh, for the first time because you didn't have to pay cash for the entire home. You could, you could mortgage a home. Um, and those resources were made to all men and women who served unless you were a person of color. And then those resources were not made to p people of color. So not only did we grow the middle class for uh, Anglo households very quickly, uh, but, uh, but it also kind of doubled down on what was happening in our minority communities, making things even that much more difficult. All that to say, you start with a summer meal program and you start with just an opportunity to be able to serve a kid, but then you begin to ask these bigger questions about well, what is happening here um, that, that is creating this structural injustice. And then are there's some ways that we can engage as a congregation. That to me is what leads you to advocacy. And for most folks, they probably have to start at the summer meal site. They're not ready to jump into political advocacy coming out of the gate. And if they think that they are, they probably aren't. They're probably like us, you know, and need to rush to understanding before they rush to solutions. So according to the USDA, 40 million Americans are food insecure. That means one in eight Americans lack sufficient food to live a healthy life. That's a lot of hungry people in America. In the past, you've spoken about your work with the Walmart Foundation or Walton Foundation, which is fighting hunger issues in, in Texas. And while the Walmart Foundation is providing millions of dollars to various causes, the fact still remains that the Walton family is the richest family in America. They have a net worth of $190 billion. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about hunger, at what point do we talk about fair wages and healthy food scarcity and how the wealth gap are all related to one another? Yeah. I think we have to talk about it simultaneously. Again, so uh, thinking about research. So, so what does research say? Why are people experiencing hunger in the U.S.? Well, the number one cause is underemployment, meaning that they're employed, uh, but they're only making, they're making low wages. And so they're not able to be able to make ends meet. And so I think you have to have that conversation uh, from the forefront. Now, you have to be wise about how you do it, but, uh, uh, and you don't want to shame somebody into, into trying to agree with you. I, I joke with our staff all the time that, you know, in political advocacy, oftentimes we think that if, if, uh, if an elected official doesn't agree with us, we just need to go public and shame them or humiliate them into agreeing with us. And it's kind of like if you went to a marriage counselor and you're sitting down with a marriage counselor and they say, listen, I know your spouse isn't doing what you want them to do. And so if you'll just shame them more publicly, then, uh, then, then that'll, that'll strengthen your marriage. You know, it's like, well, obviously that won't strengthen your marriage and that counselor would probably lose their life if they said that and uh, but for whatever reason oftentimes that's how we try to persuade and convince people uh, but building trust uh, is is critical on all levels and our elected officials are just human beings that happen to run for office and hold a particular title and you have to build a relationship with them just like you do anybody else
everybody else. So I think when you want to address these wage issues, particularly if we know that minimum wage is a hot button issue, you have to address it. So it's it's a non-negotiable to address it. But how you address it, you can do it in ways um, uh, as you're cultivating trust and and uh, and helping people understand what the realities are um, in a way that I think can be more helpful than harmful. So I think that's part of it. But you know, healthcare is another one. Obviously, I told the story of Lupe who left an indelible mark on me. I write about it in the book. Uh, who you know, my neighbor who died of of an ear infection because you didn't have access to health insurance. And uh, uh, we know that that is too common of a story in our low-income communities across the country, uh, both urban and rural. And so these are issues that we, we can't, uh, we can't uh, mince words about, uh, but we also can be, uh, we, we can assume that people want to work with us instead of coming out guns blazing uh, when addressing the issue. I will say, I'll only go back to the Walton Walmart issue. So I will, so one big thing for us was, uh, you know, when we were contemplating partnering with the Walmart Foundation, they just pledged $2 billion over a five-year window to address child hunger. They're probably, outside of the federal government, the largest funder of anti-hunger work in the nation. And so we, we had a long conversation. Is this somebody that we want to work with? And, and they know logistics well. And we knew that most of, the, most of, most of child hunger uh, in the U.S. is logistical because we've got great federal nutrition programs. And so we asked them to partner with us to teach us logistics. And then in partnership with them, we just said, you know, we're going to help you kind of look at some of these larger issues. And so I will say since then, um, I'm not saying, not saying this is to our credit, but uh, since then they've now uh, are providing providing more health care uh, to their employees. They're providing uh, job training programs so that their employees can work their way up the ladder. And now they also provide tuition remission to any of their employees who, who want to go to college. So they're making steps. And uh, I think a lot of that has to do, you know, people like Bono who are going to a lot of these different CEOs and, and imploring them to, uh, to do to do right by both their employees, but also to manufacture, you know, by, do right by uh, where they're manufacturing goods in, in the world. And so I do think these big organizations are opportunities for enormous change uh, because if they're employing oftentimes tens of thousands, if not millions of people, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world, and they're going to continue to do that. You think about Amazon and their reach. Like we, as people of faith, need to go and advocate to them to recognize the conditions that their employees are living in uh, because they're more than likely none of us are going to have the capacity to create a new business and employ a million people. And I had to come to grips with that when I had a little coffee shop in San Antonio. We employed a dozen people and that was very difficult. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to create sustainable social entrepreneurship opportunities to get us out of poverty, but we can persuade people. And uh, most of these leaders are people of faith um, of these companies. And so we have to help connect the dots for them as well. A lot of our CBF churches care deeply about these issues, and they might even collect money um, on a given Sunday to, to help people in crisis. You know, most churches have a benevolence fund. You, you spoke earlier about incarnational organizing. Uh, take that concept a little deeper and how the church might be more intentional about how it connects to the community. 
Well, too many of our churches in in uh, uh, in the CBF tradition operate outside of low-income neighborhoods. I think most of our churches are, are in middle-income or or, um, uh, or upper-class communities, and so I think uh, intentional neighboring is going to be in very important for our congregations in order to gain more proximity and have better understanding of what what the plight of the poor is like in the U.S. And so I think one of the things our churches have, have to do is to, at the very least, have another sister congregation that's from a very different context um, that they are sharing in life in. Maybe you're not worshiping together on, on a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday basis. Maybe your spiritual formation classes are in different locations with a different group of people. But where you're developing an, a long-term relationship with an organization or, a, or another congregation uh, that, where you're developing mutual trust um, and you can both be beneficial to each other. They can be beneficial to you because they can help you move towards understanding. And, uh, and then oftentimes in our congregations, we might have the school board president, you know, or the superintendent or the mayor that might attend our churches. And, uh, and so you have enormous amounts of influence and access that you just don't, that you're just used to. And, uh, and so I think oftentimes using those relationships on behalf of these organizations and communities that, uh, uh, that you partner with can be of critical importance on a local level. And that's where I, I talk about hunger-free community coalitions. To me, it's the, it's the Cadillac way, if you will, of, of addressing food insecurity on the local level. And that's where you get every organization in the community that's working on the issue of hunger around a table uh, together. Uh, but then you also bring the faith community together, uh, faith communities of all stripes to, at the table. Um, you, you really try to build a robust coalition. We have 300 organizations on our coalition in Dallas, uh, but it doesn't have to be huge like Dallas. Uh, San Angelo was one of our first pilot uh, coalitions, and they have dozens of organizations, but they have faith communities of all stripes partnering with the city uh, and with uh, uh, the congressman chairs that or has historically chaired that coalition, that one and the Dallas one. Um, but but essentially, you get all these organizations around the table, and they're beginning to develop relationships with each other, kind of across those sectoral lines and across ideological lines in ways that uh, allow them to both cultivate trust and also meet the need at a greater capacity than they could by themselves on the local level without partnering. So th those are important things I think that churches can do to move towards wholeness. Probably uh, just for time's sake, maybe our final question. Yeah. Uh, it seems difficult, but how do you measure success in combating hunger? I mean, how do we how do we know we're making a difference, or or can we really truly know um, from a from a measurable metric standpoint if we're being successful? Well, that's a great question. I mean, there there are a couple. This is a big this is a big uh, conversation right now uh, with researchers around the country. So there is a food security metric, uh, which is basically an economic measure, and that identifies if, if you're considered food insecure, that means that you don't have access to enough healthy food to live an active, healthy lifestyle. A part of that is being able to purchase food with what's considered socially acceptable means, so that you don't need government resources uh, to be able to go purchase food at a grocery store. Um, and so uh, very low food security means that you are somebody that is that doesn't that you're you're regularly disrupting uh, your your what would be considered normal eating behavior because you don't have enough money to be able to buy food. 
so one that is a great measurement it's it's done by usda's economic research service um, center uh, a couple of uh, friends of mine craig gunderson and martin nord were the ones that developed the food security metric back in the 80s uh, it's it's a phenomenal metric that's been replicated worldwide but it's really an economic measure. And so, uh, because as you can imagine, let's say uh, the economy starts to strengthen, right? And so we saw poverty rates go down before we saw food insecurity rates go down um, because people might all of a sudden have more more funds, but they're still not making enough money to be able to make ends meet, so they still live in a food insecure household, right? Uh, because even if they're even if they got that extra shift, you know, it still probably doesn't pay for rent, car payment, medical bills, and so on. Then there are uh, there's another type of measurement that's essentially measuring output, and that's like okay, this year. So our San our San Angelo Coalition, when they started their coalition, they they were addressing summer hunger, and they would serve 20 to 30 thousand meals a summer to the kids in the community, and so you literally can track. Okay, this was our intervention. And uh, all of our, so we have a, our website's hungerandpoverty.org, um, and, uh, and there's some measurement tools on that. We have a hunger data lab that can kind of give you the full, uh, full scope of the issue and, and what's happening. Um, but really, measuring impact is really in between the food security metric and then measuring your outputs. And uh, that's, a, that's a measure that uh, a number of researchers are coming together right now to try to figure out how can we see if, if these interventions are really moving the needle? It's a great question. Okay, I lied. I got one more. All right. um, so I can dare say that in my lifetime, I've never been uh, hit on by a male prostitute. And you, you spoke about that earlier. Um, so there's a, certain, there's a certain awkwardness when it comes to being open and willing to do this kind of work. Um, so how, how did you overcome the awkwardness um, and not allowing that awkwardness to prevent your effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Well, I think, you know, I came out of the gate socially awkward, so that probably helps. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I didn't know that I was being in it. But uh, um, I think it's just recognize these we're all created in God's image. And so we have more in common with each other than we don't. We focus most of our energy on what we don't have in common, whether that's in marriage or in politics. But the reality is, is that uh, we're all creating God's image. And so there are ways that we can connect. And, uh, and, and it's important for us to be present to each other. If there is anything that you do or that we can do that can move, that, that can bend the world towards justice, it is that. It is both recognizing that the homeless person, the male prostitute, uh, the politician are all created in the same image of the same God that created you. And if we can start there and really, really think about the implications of that. So if they really are created in the image of God, just like we are, then loving our neighbor as ourself means that we need to care for them and care for their health and well-being just as much as we do for ourselves or our family. We don't. We typically use people as a means to our end. But we have to start seeing people as an end and of themselves. And if we do, then our policies and our social programs and even the arc of, of the moral universe will ultimately bend towards justice. So 
um, but but that's our starting spot, and I think that that's that's part of how we can just kind of get over ourselves is recognizing that common creativeness. Well, for our listeners, go out and purchase I Was Hungry, Cultivating Common Ground to End an American Crisis. Of course, our people here got the book for free, so y'all are one step ahead. Uh, Jeremy, thank you for modeling for us a healthy and collaborative way to do the incarnational work of God in our communities. Thank you. Thanks for uh, allowing me to be here with you. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. All right, we're here in D.C. for Advocacy in Action, hosted by First Baptist Church of the City. I'm here with Greg and Sue Smith, CBF Field Personnel in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, Sue, as we get started, is there anything about Greg you want to confess and tell us about? Oh, no, but I was going to say my stupid story for me. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I told him right before that uh, they asked what what kind of questions I was going to ask, and I said, well, the first one probably be what is your deepest, darkest sin. Um, so Sue said that she would be willing to... Uh, uh, share Greg's. So, um, yeah. I've rethought that. Yeah. I don't think that's a very good idea. All right. So, let's talk uh, theologically about immigration. So, um, it is a wonder that anyone can read the Gospels and draw, not draw the conclusion that we are called to love our neighbor, especially our neighbor who's very different from us. Uh, if you can't draw that conclusion from the Gospels, then I don't know what you're reading. But um, I have found that when People want to play, uh, this is at what point they want to play their America card. So hang with me for just a second. When it's convenient, somebody wants to play the America is a Christian nation card, which I'm, I'm not going to go down the road of arguing the merit for or against that. But I found that people, when you start to talk about immigration, they want to pick up that America is a Christian nation card off the table because they want to start talking about national and public security instead of love their neighbor. So besides the argument of the golden rule as a foundation for immigration reform, what other biblical arguments can you make or should we understand about um, immigration? Well, I think that um, I think that when we reread the Bible or read the Bible through new eyes, I think we come to the conclusion that the biblical story is a story about those who are on the move, those who, those who are migrating, those who are um, not staying where they perhaps were born, but are moving either because of economic circumstances, um, because of uh, conflict, or in some cases out of a call of God. But they are on the move. And I believe when you when you look at um, when you look at our faith and you look at trying to understand what is going on in today's world, you understand that the migrant story is as old as the biblical story, from Abraham and Sarah uh, all the way through uh, Mary Joseph and Jesus. You find many of our biblical mothers and fathers who were 
who were caught in a world where oftentimes they, they found themselves having to make the difficult choices of having to uproot themselves and leave. And so it's not just an issue of do unto others. It's not just an issue of, yes, welcome the stranger. We do need to be doing that. Those are powerful arguments. But it's also an issue of understanding that the world that we live in is a world that oftentimes forces individuals to leave, situ to leave their homes, to leave their communities, to leave their jobs, to leave their families, and go somewhere else, oftentimes because they didn't choose it, but the circumstances chose them and forced them to do so. We need, I think, as people of faith to understand that the biblical story is a story of our, of our fathers and mothers who oftentimes left home to move somewhere else to, in order to simply survive or to thrive. We hear fear-mongering about immigrants and refugees from TV pundits and from politicians, as well as the videos and uh, things we read on social media. Um, and I wish I could say that most of us think independently. We draw our own opinions instead of regurgitating what we're hearing from others. Um, but sadly, that's not necessarily the case for everybody. So what are some of the most common misconceptions about uh, immigrants and refugees? I think for immigrants, I think uh, I hear a lot that people don't pay taxes. Um, that people use the system, that people come here because they want something, they want what we have. Um, and I don't find any of those to be true. Um, of the people that we work with, and our ministry uh, includes probably, we've probably ministered to probably 1,500 people over the years at least, um, that we've, we've worked, we work with families long term. All of the people that I know work. I don't know anybody who sits around and waits for someone else to come around and feed them or clothe them or give them a car or give them a house. They're all working and at least washing dishes for cash um, to pay the bills and to get them to and from work. The majority of those folks are paying their taxes, even if they uh, receive a 1099 and are paying as an independent contractor at the end of the year. They're voluntarily paying their taxes because they know that in the end, if they ever want to uh, be legal permanent residents or adjust status in any way in the United States, that's a requirement. They're going to have to show proof for that. Um, and so many, many folks are doing that voluntarily. Um, if they don't have taxes withheld from their paychecks. In the state of Virginia, uh, immigrants do not qualify for public benefits like food stamps or SNAP or uh, Medicaid or any of those programs. And even folks who do qualify many times are hesitant to actually apply for benefits. Um, they would prefer not to. Um, and so they're not coming into our country to come in and automatically apply for public programs so that they will receive assistance. The majority are even unaware that those programs, at least when they come into the United States, they're unaware that those programs exist because they come from countries where the government has a reputation for not caring about its people, for not taking care of them, for not providing well for their needs. And so they've come here for other reasons, but they've not come here to try to get something for nothing. They've really come here to work. 
Well, on top of that, even if somebody's here, uh, let's just say hypothetically, somebody comes here uh, illegally, uh, they're paying property tax, they're paying retail tax, they're paying payroll tax, but mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not receiving any of the benefits of being a citizen of the country. So it, that that whole concept is a, is a broken concept um, as well. How, how might local church pastors lead spiritual formation efforts in their congregations to help alleviate or dissolve some of this fear-mongering that's so prevalent in our country? I think, I think one of the things that congregations can do is just simply open the space to have a conversation. I think... I think many church leaders, or at least some church leaders, are afraid to talk about the issue because they're afraid that it's going to create controversy or dissension or arguments, and so it's much easier to try to keep peace than it is to open up something that may lead to where they can't envision. But. But within the Christian community, we need to have spaces to have these conversations. We need to be able to talk. And we need to be able to speak honestly. That, that may be very difficult to do. And it, may, it probably would take a period of several conversations to where we feel like we could speak as openly, as honestly as possible. But in, in a context where we can, we can vent our frustrations, in a context where we can, where we can speak our, our interpretations, and our opinions, I, I, I at least open the space to have a dialogue. Um, what I don't find necessarily helpful is is one perspective constantly being being spoken or being taught to the point where others who may think differently don't have a chance to voice their to voice their view. Um, so I guess I'm saying the pulpit is a good place to, to introduce ideas and themes, but I don't think it's the best place. I think a place where you can actually have a dialogue rather than a monologue is probably best, although certainly addressing it from the pulpit would be good too. Many, many uh, are, are afraid to do that as well. But at least a space to have a conversation and begin the dialogue. Um, that might be a, a place to start. I think it also makes a difference whether a congregation knows and has interaction with uh, some type of migrant uh, peoples within the congregation, uh, whether it's immigrants who have come that have chosen to uh, congregate there or whether it's uh, through a model of ministry like a welcome house where they're serving as volunteers and have some regular interaction with refugees. The more personal contact that the church members have with immigrants and refugees, then the more likely they are to be able to have that kind of conversation because migration has a face um, once they know those people. Those are now their friends. Those are now not an abstract idea or an issue, but we're now talking about their friends. So from understanding the documents to deadlines, from court dates to legal fees, probably one of the most frustrating things to legally come into the United States is to legally come to the United States. So give us an honest snapshot of what it looks like to go through the legal process of seeking asylum or legal immigration in the United States. And, and walk us through how you assist people with immigration legal services. Coming to the United States is restricted to really um, a certain, a certain um, categories or 
or types of individuals, you might say. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to put that into words, but essentially, essentially, individuals primarily come to the United States through through three main processes: um, family-based immigration employment-based immigration or through a humanitarian-based immigration process. We primarily help people through family-based immigration. Uh, in fact, we don't handle employment-based. We don't handle humanitarian-based. Um, the, the fourth would be through the visa lottery, which we really don't do as well. So we mainly do through family-based family immigration. And this is what it looks like for us. When, when someone approaches us and says, you know, I'd like to become, um, I'd like to become legal in the country. I'd like to have status. The first question we will ask them is, all right, tell me who, tell me about your family. Um, who is it in your family who has legal status in the country? Um, do you have a, do you have a U.S. citizen spouse? Or are you married to a U.S. citizen? Or do you have a U.S. citizen uh, child um, who's, who is uh, 21 and over? Do you have a um, are you a legal permanent resident where you are also um, married to, or, or you're married to a legal permanent resident? Do you have a legal permanent resident um, uh, a father or mother as well? Do you have a U.S. citizen uh, uh, brother or sister. It depends on the family relationship. Certain family relations, uh, certain family members can petition for their family members, but certain family members can't. You can't petition for a grandmother, you can't petition for a grandfather, you can't petition for a cousin, an aunt, an uncle. Um, if you're a legal permanent resident, you can't petition for a son or a daughter who is married. Um, if you are a, um, uh, if you're a legal permanent resident, you can't petition for a sister or brother. So there are certain classifications of individuals that you can petition for. So we'll ask them, how did you, uh, or we'll ask them, uh, who, who's a family member? Who can petition for you? Many times they will say, well, I don't have anyone. And at that point, we will begin to talk with them about perhaps some other ways that they might be able to petition uh, to become to uh, to become a lawful permanent resident um, if they um, if they are the victim of a domestic violence incident uh, then they could perhaps petition through a VAWA petition Violence Against Women's Act uh, if they were the victim of a crime in the U.S. they can petition through a U visa perhaps if they are the victim of human trafficking they can petition through a T visa or uh, we will we will screen them to see if they perhaps might be able to petition through an asylum application. We don't handle asylum applications, but we refer out. But we can at least ask some of the basic questions to see if we believe at least they may have a, 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 a basis for petitioning for asylum. So... The legal process in a family-based um, petition starts with who are your who are the family members that um, uh, that can petition for you. If there is someone, if you, for instance, are married to a U.S. citizen, that U.S. citizen spouse can petition for you, um, and therefore they petition for you, and you fill out a particular application, and it's through that process that you can become a uh, you become a lawful permanent resident. One of the things that a lot of people don't understand, though, is that, and immigrants as well as those in the non-immigrant community, is that um, it's, not, it's, not a, it's, it's not a quick process. 
for instance, if someone were to petition for um, for their for their spouse, they would have to f they would have to fill out their own petition that proves that they're a U.S. citizen, uh, that proves that uh, they have a relationship with this individual. That individual would then have to fill out their own application and with all the documentation that goes with it, send it in, and then it can take anywhere between eight, 10, 12 months before a, um, a decision is, is uh, brought back from USCIS whether they can, whether they can uh, get their green card or not. But let's say that you're a U.S. citizen and you are petitioning for your brother or your sister and they're coming in from outside of the, UNI outside of the United States, they're in another country. That's the same process where you, where the U.S. citizen uh, would fill out a petition. That would take probably eight to ten months before the uh, the U.S. government would say yes, it's okay then for you to go ahead and start the process of bringing your brother in. But oh wait, there's not a visa available for this individual, not now. Right now, it's looking like maybe. 15, 16, 17 years from now, there might be a visa available for him or her, him if it's a brother. So, um, all right, you filled out the petition, that's fine, you can petition for this person, but there's not a visa available for him for maybe 15, 16 years. At that point, when there is a visa available, then they can start the process with the Department of State, consulate, embassy overseas to come to the States. So, it's... It is a. It is all through who you who you're who you're re related to, but the but the time factor can be difficult, and it can be a slow process for some. We'll probably only have time for uh, one more question. We'll do a separate recording of Sue telling us your deepest, darkest sin. Okay. Uh, so uh, when I think about CBF churches doing good work with immigrants and refugees, I think of uh, partnerships like Mark and Kim Wyatt have done in the Raleigh-Durham area with Welcome Houses, which is churches providing houses that give people a place to transition into, into this country while they're trying to get their feet under them. What are some of the unique and impactful ways that congregations can directly help immigrants and refugees? I think um, working with children is perhaps one of the most important things because many of the many of the folks that come to us and talk about how to help, how to have an impact, they say, "Well, we don't speak the language of the the community that's in our town. Uh, we don't speak Spanish, or we don't speak whatever other language that they might speak." And it's like, "Well, um, have you talked with the the, the schools, the local schools? Um, you have teachers in your congregation. They have a lot to give. One of the biggest challenges that immigrant families." and refugee families face is the education of their children. Um, the parents really are not literate enough in, in English or oftentimes not literate enough in English to be able to help the kids with homework. And all of the papers are coming home and the parents are not able to read those papers. They aren't able to interact with the school systems because they're working. Um, by the time the kids get to fifth or sixth grade, they've got the reputation that the parents don't care, the parents never show up, um, the kids come consistently without having done their homework. And pretty soon the school system is pretty tired of dealing with immigrant and refugee kids. Um, so churches can play a big, have a big impact in the immigrant and refugee community by working with local schools to provide after-school tutoring, uh, to pro 
provide after school programming, summer bridge programs. Uh, Touching Miami with Love, I know, provides strong educational programs, um, a good CBF partner there. And I think programs like that help the kids, whether they're with underprivileged kids in the communities or refu refugee and immigrant kids. But that's something I believe all churches have. Uh, I don't know of a single CBF church that doesn't have a teacher or two in the church um, who could organize this type of program. Well, if you find out more information about Greg and Sue Smith, you can visit cbf.net backslash missions. Greg and Sue, thank you for modeling for us what long-term incarnational presence can do for transforming God's world. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites, fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in the